0: I guess I'd love to just start with, tell us about yourself. If the if the audience listening to this isn't familiar with you and this incredible body of work, working in the White House, and I love the story about getting into Juilliard, like there's so many things I <laughs> want to dig into, but will you just take us on a journey of who you are and how you got to be this woman? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, it's wonderful to meet you and thanks so much for having me on. I thought I was always going to be a violinist. When I was six years old, my mom went up to our attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her all the way from India. It was one of the few things she uh, brought overseas with her when she immigrated here. And I picked up the instrument and I i was just immediately captured by it. And I think my, my mom could see very quickly, oh, wow, I think this is kind of a special thing going on because you know, you have to tell kids to do lots of things, but she never had to tell me to practice. It was always something that felt like joy and fun. And certainly a lot of my homework didn't feel like joy and fun. So I knew that I just wasn't excited about everything. Uh, It was that violin really tapped into something within me. And so I became quite serious about the instrument over the years. When I was nine years old, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York To your earlier.
0: Yeah. Okay. Hold on though. (laughs) Hold on. You have to tell that story because it wasn't Yes.
1: So what happened is, you know, I've been playing the violin and my parents had no connections in the musical world. So my dad is a theoretical physics professor at Yale. My mom helps immigrants get green cards in this country. Neither of them had any intel into how it is that you break into the classical music world. And so my mom knew that it was one of my dreams to apply for the the Juilliard pre-college program. And so we were walking in New York one day. It was just a mother-daughter trip. And I had my violin with me. And we walked by the the physical building, the Juilliard building. And my mom said to me, Maya, why don't we just go in? Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And, you know, I'm the nine-year-old being like, mom, you're being crazy. Like, there's no way that we should ever go in. They're going to turn us down. This is going to be terrible. And she's like, look, the worst thing that can happen is they just tell us like, thank you. Have a nice day. Please leave our building. But let's just give it a go. So we walk into the building, unannounced, uninvited. And my mom, the total fearless go-getter, who's also just a very charming, lively, bubbly person, strikes up a conversation with a mother and daughter in the elevator. And she explains that, you know, I'm a aspiring concert violinist. And if they were willing, would they let me meet her violin teacher after this young girl's lesson was over? And the family was very, very nice and said, oh, sure thing. When my lesson's over, I'll introduce you to my teacher. And I ended up auditioning for this teacher on the spot. He accepted me into a summer program, which was essentially like a boot camp for for violinists. And then I auditioned for Juilliard in the fall and was accepted. And Rachel, I have to tell you, like that completely changed my life because, Hmm. one, there's no way in heck I would ever have been accepted into Juilliard had I not gone through the boot camp. I just wasn't good enough. Uh, But number two, it instilled in me a really valuable lesson about the fact that a lot of times in life, especially when you have dreams and aspirations, things are rarely handed to you on a silver platter. And what my mom taught me is when the opportunity doesn't exist, you better well damn create it. Just make it happen for yourself. And I loved that spirit. I mean, I don't think as a nine-year-old, I was consciously aware of the fact she was teaching me this profound lesson in life, but I've certainly seen it play out over and over again as I've navigated my life's twists and turns and tried to create opportunities for myself.
0: What I also love about that is I, I always dig this reminder that you know, people, it's exactly like you said, like people have dreams or things that they want to do. And they're sort of wondering when that, that big break's going to happen or when they're going to, you know. And I really do think there are those moments in life. Like, yes, your mom walked you guys into that building, but you had done so much preparation to get to that moment. There's not a world where your mom's walking you into that building if she hadn't seen the dedication that you gave to this craft For all Mm -hmm. the time before that. And I, I say that because I think there are a lot of people listening who do have hopes and dreams and this thing that they want for themselves. And they're kind of like, how can I make that opportunity happen now? And I would sort of come back and say... How can you make sure that you're totally prepared so that when you do get this moment in time, you can take advantage of it? There's this quote from Oprah that I love where she says, "Um, there's no such thing as luck. There's only preparation, meaning opportunity at a moment in time. And so you need both of those things for that to be the life that you've lived since then. I I
1: think that's such an insightful, important point, which is, yes, you, you need some of that fearlessness and to innovate and try to create opportunities for yourself. But you basically have to put yourself in a position where you put in so much hard work that at any moment when you're given the opportunity, you're going to seize the moment and deliver. And I think that I just had that mindset as a kid, which was, this is really my big dream in life and I can't squander it. So if my mom's going to do me that service of opening the door, I better like march the F in and like kick butt when I'm in that room. And and that felt like, you know, my responsibility at the time. But you're absolutely right. I mean, just hours and hours sitting in my practice room and and I don't want to romanticize practicing. Like I loved it, but (laughs) you know, you're not, sometimes you just want to hang out with your friends after school. You don't want to be practicing Tchaikovsky. And so there were definitely very painful moments, but uh, I was just, you know, I had such a singular focus that I really did want to make sure I was as prepared as I possibly could be.
0: I love the reminder too, that of not romanticizing what that is because it is really hard work right like we see these Mm -hmm. people get celebrated we see athletes or musicians or uh, Beyonce or whatever what you're seeing when you get to the stage where you're seeing what you get to when you're at the Olympics or the Super Bowl is all of the hard work that happened when no one was watching right like when it sucked when it was hard when you got blisters on your fingers when you were bored when you missed hanging out with your friends, like, where did you Mm -hmm. learn the dedication to do something like that so young? Or was it just the love of violin that, that sort of made that possible for you?
1: I mean, I think love gets you in the door and gets you through those early humps, uh, that would otherwise deter a six-year-old from wanting to keep doing the thing, but it's not sustainable, right? I mean, in the same way that like, I think the thing that really kept me motivated was that every weekend, every Saturday, I was immersed in music world for at least 10 hours of the day. So the Juilliard prep program is one where you do regular school during the week, wherever it is that you live. And, you know, I lived in Connecticut and my mom uh, or my dad would bring me up to New York from Connecticut at we wake up at 430 in the morning, get to New York. And I would basically engage in like nine or 10 hours of classes, essentially nonstop. And if you told me that I had to do that in isolation as a as a kid, I would have been like, "Get out of here! There's no way. I definitely want to go to Katie's sleepover instead." But because I was surrounded by like minded kids, right, it normalized the whole thing for me, right? I, I was like, "Well, you know, I don't always love practicing, but neither does Krista, and neither neither does Greg, like all you know, neither neither does this violinist sitting next to me in orchestra. But all these other kids are doing it, and they all have the same dreams that I'm." That I have. And so I think actually that camaraderie and that feeling that I wasn't really alone in this pursuit, that I had all these peers who I really looked up to and really admired and was friends with um, who were living a similar kind of life helped propel me forward. And, and I share this because I think we sometimes undervalue these community factors when it comes to our own motivation and psyche. It's something that I've realized in a really profound way over time. You know, people will ask like, oh, you know, what drove you at the White House? What drove you at various parts of your career? And I feel like the answer is always people. It's always people that are energizing me. I guess that's kind of meta-commentary. I mean, I'm a cognitive scientist. Obviously, I'm fascinated by humans, but I think I'm also the most inspired by humans at the end of the day. And so people can be everything. And certainly, I think that helped me as a kid stay really focused.
0: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. How does that play out for you today as an adult? I mean, obviously, if you're at Juilliard, if you're in the White House, you're you're getting to sort of be thrust into situations where you're with the best of the best, where you're with those high achievers and those people that are, if you're not at their level, they're probably going to kind of pull you up to their level if you want to stay in that same space with them. So what does it look like in your life or have you experienced a time where you weren't being put into those situations and you had to make the community or you had to find that inner circle of people you know, maybe it was in school or when you were coming up in your career, but were there moments where you had to make the thing that you mm-hmm. didn't yet have? Yeah, I mean, I would say that
1: I've always felt pushed by the people around me, no matter what situation I'm in, because you will always find people who are better than you are at like most things in life. But I think that the key is figuring out whether they're pushing you in the right way and along the right dimensions, given your personality and what makes you tick. So a good example of this not being the case for me was... I was doing my postdoc in cognitive neuroscience at Stanford back in the day. and
0: Okay, hold yeah. on, because you are fancy, and I need to understand exactly what that means. <laughs> studying so the mind. for <laughs> a country mouse, like, okay, great. Thank you, studying the mind, so everybody's yep. clear. <laughs> putting
1: people in brain scanners, scanning their brains, looking at images, trying to figure out how that mapped onto their decisions or their emotions or whatnot. Now, as you can imagine, right, like I definitely had imposter syndrome in this lab. These people were incredibly brilliant and smart and talented and motivated. But I remember sitting there, Rachel, in this fMRI laboratory, and it's a windowless room. I'd been there in there for hours scanning people's brains. And I thought to myself, this is not the life for me. Like I'm already peering into this dude's brain. I don't know whether he has kids. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I don't know what his passions in life are. Given what a social creature I am, I feel like the order of operations is is whack. Like it needed to be the other way around where I really got to know. him, And then I looked into his brain. So I remember thinking in that moment, oh gosh, um, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So even though I was in, in this incredible environment, I mean, I think a lot of your listeners will resonate with the feeling that, You might be around incredible people, but it's not right for you. It's not the right environment for you. And I think it is just as important in life to recognize when the environment is tailored to you as it is to recognize when it's not, so that you can take active efforts to exit that environment and try to find something that is a better match or a better fit. And it can be really hard, right? At this point in my life, I had done my PhD for many years. Then I'd done this postdoc. My whole undergrad major was in studying the mind. Like I devoted 10 years or so to this whole enterprise. And now I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to be an academic. Holy, like whatever. (laughs) Right. So I, yeah. So I think that's an example where I've just realized, yeah, wasn't the right, wasn't
0: the right fit for me. Now uh, it's it's a big deal to come to that realization, but i going to assume and you can tell me if i'm wrong was that hard for your parents given that that's what your dad did and you had worked so long and so hard and devoted so much time to this for you to decide to change it's a great question
1: not at all hard for my parents which was nice oh, which was really
0: nice so uh, you know The one
1: piece of the story I need to fill in for listeners is that I lost my ability to play the violin when I was 16 because I had a sudden hand injury. And I discovered the mind through this textbook that I was, uh, you know, I was helping my parents clean their basement. I discovered my sister's old college textbook. It was all about how our minds work. And I was just absolutely in awe of the mind. It didn't quite have that same spark as the violin, but it was pretty freaking close. And that was very exciting to me because I wasn't sure I'd stumble upon something that I loved as much as the violin. And so I, I think my parents had already seen me pivot once in my life in a pretty profound way from violin to cognitive science. And I actually remember calling up my dad when I was in my postdoc and being like, look, I've admired you for so long. I think you're like, not only is he this very brilliant professor, but he is incredible teacher. So he's been spending so much of his career trying to figure out how to translate really complex scientific concepts from physics into terms that lay people can understand. And so I just admired so many parts of that life. And I also saw the very romantic parts of being an academic. Like as a kid, he did a sabbatical in Santa Barbara. So my whole family got to live in Santa Barbara for six months. I was like, this is awesome. You travel to amazing conferences all <laughs> over the world. This is great. Yes. Uh, but when I called him up, he actually told me, he's like, Maya, given what I know about you, this is not the right match, okay? Okay. I've met people who I think, you know, academia is for them. It's not for you. I think the real challenge for you is figuring out what it is that you, what it is that's a a better fit for your, for your personality.
0: And how did you even go about doing that? Or did you have an idea before you made the change? Yeah, I had had absolutely no idea. I'm graduating
1: with this postdoc in cognitive neuroscience and I have no idea what, someone does with that kind of degree if they don't become a professor. So I remember calling up my undergrad advisor and saying, "Hey Laurie, thanks for getting me into the field of cognitive science. Don't want to do it anymore. Thoughts?" <laughs> and she tells me, and I said, "Should I try to become a general management consultant? Is it too late to like leave the field?" And she said, "Look Maya, I know that academia might not be right for you, but I also know that you are genuinely fascinated by human behavior." And so you don't want to have to leave fully. Like, maybe you can be a practitioner of the field. I was like, okay, what would that look like? She said, well, I heard about this amazing work that was happening in the federal government. So this was in the the Obama White House, where they were using insights about human behavior and decision-making to help millions of low-income kids get access to free lunch every day at school. And I heard about this story, and it was so emotionally resonant for me because I had been very acutely aware of all the ways in which insights from behavioral science could in theory translate into improvements in people's lives. But now I was hearing about this work happening in real time, right? I think that was the moment where I thought, okay, yeah, I am really interested in human behavior and I do want to do this. And I would love to do it at the intersection of public policy because it means that I can actually help people and, um, you know, have a really hopefully positive real world impact. But then- I did happened to my mom's Juilliard method because I didn't know anybody in the federal government. I had no political connections, no policy connections. Like, it was a totally foreign world for me. So my advisor gave me the email address of a very senior official who had just left the White House. His name was Cass Sunstein. And I sent him an email. And I was like, hi, I'm Maya. I've published nothing of significance. I have no public policy experience, but I would love to work in, you know, at the intersection of public policy and behavioral science. And I did a very classic female thing, which is I downplayed myself and I even wrote in the note I remember saying Rachel like mm. oh um, I know I'm not cool enough with to work with the likes of Obama but if it's at all possible to do something with state or local government that would be amazing so I was already just stacking the cards against me and I think this is something that we see ourselves doing all the time which is wow. just to avoid yeah. you know ever coming off as too confident you know feeling like you're you're capable than more than you are like we're so mm-hmm. allergic and averse to that and so thankfully for me Cass Sunstein opened my email, ignored all that crap, and was like, here's the president's science advisor's email address. Send him a note and let him know that, you you know, I sent you along. A week later, I'm interviewing with a senior White House official. It's blowing my mind that this is happening, period, in my life. And there was this profound moment where I was telling him about all of these ideas that I had about ways that we could apply insights about human behavior into the design of public policy, and he and I remember I was recommending something for the first lady's initiative, and he goes, "Yeah, I, I know Michelle Obama and her chief of staff. Like, we can make that happen." And that was the moment where I realized, okay, this is real. Like, this is something that can actually happen. Yeah. And then I packed up my bags, and before I even had a formal offer letter, I had signed a one-year lease in D.C. because I I had the mentality of. I'm going to move here and I'm going to make myself known and present. I'm going to force you guys to give me this job. So thankfully it all ended up working out, but I just, I was so excited about the opportunity.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, I love this theme in your life of like you, you are sort of finding a way if if the front door isn't open, you're going in through a window. But again, you had all of this work and this time and this sort of incubation period to get to that interview mm-hmm. and even have ideas to present to them. And I just feel like both are important because so often when people listen to an interview like this, like this mm. they just listen to this sort of inspiring moment where you get to sit down and whatever, and they kind of ignore the work that went into it before yeah. you got to that place. I mean, again,
1: I think that the point you're making is so important. And I'm so glad you're, you're sharing this insight because that's absolutely right. And one thing that I learned from going through many of these experiences is if you build a community of supporters around you, it, it doesn't have to be an intentional thing. It can just happen when you care about people and they care about you and you invest in each other. You don't have to go through these changes alone. You don't have to do them yourself. So I remember when I got the White House interview, I called up five or six of my fellow cognitive scientists, behavioral scientists. And I said, you know, I'm interviewing at the White House in three days and I'm pulling together all these proposals and ideas. Can we can I just have 30 minutes of your time to brainstorm stuff? And I do feel like if we can build these communities around ourselves, it can actually help us fill in the gaps of whatever knowledge we lack at that moment or whatever inexperience we have. Like people can help us rise to the occasion and get to that level.
0: traveltexas.com dot slash get your own So tell us about that experience of working in that administration <laughs> and like what you got to work on and what that was like for you career-wise. Like Give us a broad overview. Yeah.
1: It, it was actually really hard. It was an incredibly challenging job. And I think to your earlier point, it's easy to romanticize my time in, in the White House because you look at it and you're like, oh, and then she had this team and it had all this impact. And then Obama met with her and he signed this thing. But that's just not the reality of one, what went on behind the scenes. So So let me set the scene for you. Rachel. Okay, so like I'm a 27 year old coming into government. Again, no public policy experience. And I was given some really valuable guidance from my boss at the time, he had worked for Clinton for eight years had left during Bush, and then came back for Obama. And what he said is that when he left after Clinton, he had a very evocative analogy. He said it was as though he had been spending eight years building this elaborate sandcastle on the beach. And then one wave came and crashed the whole thing over. And there was barely any remnants of all of the work that he had done. So he told me, when you come in, it's great for you to accomplish whatever you can as one person, but a lot of that will leave with you. And you want the work that you do in government to outlast your unique tenure while you're there. So with that lesson in mind, I decided, well, you know, I can translate behavioral science into improvements in people's lives. But what if I spent my time instead building out a dedicated team of behavioral scientists that could be a formal part of government, live past my time here in the White House, and do this as a matter of course, right, as as a part of regular business-as-usual practice in the government. So I decided I wanted to create a behavioral science team. The challenge is that I, there was no mandate to create this team. I had no budget. I had no headcount. And I basically had no power. <laughs> so uh, I felt like the cards were stacked against me. And I really took on the entrepreneur mindset. I knocked on every single door I could in the government. I engaged at all levels of government, right? So I worked with new political leadership. I worked with folks who had been working in the government for decades. Um, anybody who was willing to have a conversation with me, I had a conversation with them. And what I did is I just tried to get some quick wins on the board, convince my peers at the Department of Veterans Affairs to just run one pilot with me or to convince the Department of Education to just partner with me on one thing. And... You know, the denominator of conversations was in maybe the thousands at a certain point. And for every hundred conversations, I think maybe I get one opportunity out of it, and that might be generous. But over time, I started to see this cultural change happen where, uh, let me give you a concrete example so listeners know what I even mean by doing this applied behavioral science thing. So a good example is when veterans return from their time overseas, we offer a educational and employment benefit to them uh, with the hopes that it can help ease the very difficult transition from military to civilian life. And the unfortunate thing is that even though the government was offering this program, a lot of veterans were not taking advantage of it, even though it was in their hopefully best interest. And that could be because we weren't doing a good job communicating about it. Maybe it was confusing um, the application process, et cetera, et cetera. So the Department of Veterans Affairs asked for some advice on how to improve their outreach. And they said, we, our budget's really limited. So we've got one email, and you can just make changes to that one email that's a wow. marketing email about the program. And we ended up changing just one word in the email. Instead of telling veterans that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. And that one word change led to a 9% increase in participation in the program. And what's amazing about this is it, it it leverages a behavioral insight called the endowment effect, which basically says we value things a lot more when we own them or feel that we've earned them in some way because we have now something to lose, right? It's mine to have, and then I'm going to lose it. And so that was an example of like one of those wins where when you get it on the board, then all of a sudden... You know, my colleagues in the Department of Veterans Affairs are now telling their partners in the Department of Defense, "Hey, this Maya person, there, there's some value here." You know, and over time, we were able to build enough momentum and excitement that I, you know, I was eventually able to build out this team, get a budget, get support, brief President Obama, and he ended up signing an executive order that institutionalized uh, the team as as a regular part of government. And so, yeah, that was an amazing. I mean, also he's just the coolest guy. It's so funny. I was telling my husband, I was like, man, that day was really the best day ever meeting Obama. My husband had to gently remind me that we got married that year. So
0: (laughs) I should probably update. He's like, thanks. Thank you for that. (laughs) But also in your defense, come on, come on. Yeah. He's very (laughs) empathetic. He's
1: a huge Obama fan himself. So She's so, happy to be won up by Obama.
0: <laughs> so in that time that you're there, you're you're I love, love. Like I'm gonna nerd out and think about this all day. This this idea that you have to create work that's gonna outlast you. In this mm-hmm. case, the tenure that you were in the White House, but also what a beautiful thought for all of us to think through is like, what am I creating that will outlast me? Mm-hmm. What is the legacy that I leave behind? When that administration wrapped up, did you stay inside? Working in the government? Like, how did you, how have you shifted and changed since that time period?
1: Yes. So, when Trump won the election, I was out the door. However, because I had built the team in a very non-partisan part of government. And this was very intentional, right? Remember my boss's advice, which was don't build in a place that's susceptible to a lot of political influence and leadership change. Build it in a part of government that just does good government practice, right? So we baked it into a very bipartisan part of government. And so they continued to do fantastic work during Trump's administration. They continue to operate and do great work under the Biden administration. They've helped people navigate, you know, wildfires. They've helped uh, combat the opioid epidemic. Like they've been doing really incredible uh, work to help improve people's lives. That's awesome.
0: And what then have you been up to since then?
1: <laughs> so I, yeah, moved out to California and started working at Google, also in a behavioral economics role. And then my latest passion project has been starting my new podcast, A yeah. Slight Change of Plans. And <laughs> I am totally and utterly obsessed with it. <laughs> I love podcasting. It is such an honor to be able to interview people that I admire so much. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. Um, Absolutely. And I, you know, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, Tiffany Haddish, Tommy Caldwell, like people with just incredible stories of change. And what I love about it, given my personality, is that I have license to cut through all the pleasantries and basically be like, hi- Hillary Clinton. Um so tell me about the worst moment of your life. Tell me about the hardest right. moment of your life. Tell me about when you, you know, you're able as as an interviewer to really get deep into that person's yeah. life and and hopefully unlock parts of them that not only listeners haven't heard but in some cases they themselves are hopefully realizing with you together for the first time. And I love it when as a team, we're unpacking, you know, their life and are stumbling upon new ways of seeing their story or new insights or reflections. Um, It's just been, it's basically the most fun I've ever fun I've ever had in my life. I mean, (laughs) I love the violin, but like podcasting doesn't require practicing alone in a room for four or five hours a day. Um, And I love the social element of podcasting, getting to work with my amazing producers and editor. And yeah, it's just been, it's been so much fun.
0: And was the process fun the entire time? Was it daunting at all when you started because it was this new medium for you, or did you just jump in? I guess what i'm what I'm really asking is when you approach a new project and your life has been just full of those, mm-hmm. um do you approach it with excitement? Is there like what's the process that you go through when you're getting into something new?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It certainly depends on what it is I'm pursuing, right? Some things I feel very, like, it feels very daunting. Um, And other things, just my natural enthusiasm and ebullience kind of propels me forward. I would say that I approach basically every project in my life, though, with impatience. Like, I, I mean, my my parents have been saying this about me from the time I was a little girl, but like, I want things to have happened yesterday. (laughs) That's like, that should just be my life mantra. Like, did it happen yesterday? If not, we're moving too slowly. So let me just tell you a little bit, Rachel, about my the genesis for the podcast, and then I can let you know how it unfolded. But basically, in 2020, I was feeling very overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change that was happening around me. And I know a lot of people felt very overwhelmed by the rapid change happening around them. And I think in part, in part, that was just this very acute feeling that We were not we're not in control, you know, like control is in many ways an illusion. And it's something that we like to feel we have because it just feels psychologically better to feel like we have control. But we face this collective moment as a world where things were just running away from us. And I then tried to put on my psychologist behavioral scientist hat and think, okay, the specifics of what 2020 threw our way are certainly unprecedented. Um, They're very novel. We don't know how to approach this moment. But in many ways, our minds are actually built for change. And our ability to navigate change is not unprecedented. And that was an insight for me because I thought in that moment, if I can collect stories of people who have experienced incredible change in their lives and have found some way or other to navigate it, they might not always have been successful, but just like some way to navigate it, right? We all have to kind of live through so many of these experiences maybe we can learn something really valuable. Maybe we can mine their stories for insights that can help us think about change differently in our own lives and give us more, I wouldn't even say like more inspiration because I think that's a little bit reductionist. It's just more complexity in the way that we think about change. Because I don't want to, my goal with this podcast is not to like have the change story and then tie it up a little bow and say, hey, look, everybody ended up better after a big change because that's not the case. And and the human experience is so complex and the emotional experiences that accompany a big change are very complex. So my goal was to just, again, mine people's stories for insights. And so I pulled together my pitch document and as soon as the idea crystallized, I just went into like, I don't know, Maya mode. And what Maya mode looks like is the singular focus, uh, communicating with everyone I possibly can in the sphere that might be able to give me some insight into how to make this thing happen. Uh, In this particular case, I went back to my undergrad advisor, Laurie Santos. She's the one who recommended that I try the White House gig. And she actually has a very successful podcast with Pushkin called The Happiness Lab. And so she sent my pitch doc uh, to Pushkin. And I think within like a few days, I was pitching the group and we did a whole piloting phase. And here we are (laughs) with a full season. This was all happening in like November and December of of 2020. And now uh, we've got the full season underway. So so this one felt as smooth as I think any life pursuit has felt just because it really taps into something within me that's very deep uh, in terms of passion. And I think at the end of the day, it's helped me realize part of my passion for the violin was not even about the sounds it was producing, but about the fact that the violin allowed me to connect with people in this really unique and special way. Like you can be on stage performing and you're forging an emotional connection with members of your audience. You're having moments together of beauty, right? Where you're appreciating this composer's work I think doing this podcast helped me realize, okay, I think the thing I'm actually passionate about is people. (laughs) And the violin was an instrument for forging that human emotional connection. And podcasting is another expression of that.
0: To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market, because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. Market.com slash rach. ThriveMarket.com slash This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. I was actually thinking as you were explaining it, it is this sort of beautiful, like all of these parts of yourself and all of these parts of your story are coming together in a really beautiful way because there is obviously in violin, there is this performative, aspect. And then you have this work that you've done and how people think. And I imagine a big part of that was you needing to understand what you were seeing in those scans, but also being able to communicate that to them. And it just feels like mm-hmm. you've sort of found this path. And maybe that's why it just organically happened so, so swiftly. I love it. I can't wait to listen in. I <laughs> actually, for all that I didn't know the term, am a big nerd on how the brain works. So I will geek oh, out that. and read, like, are you familiar with Dr. Amen? mm Oh my gosh. I'm going to have the team like send you a link. Yeah. So his whole, (laughs) like all of his work is around this idea that the brain is sort of the one part of the body that if you're experiencing sickness or you have a problem, it's a, you don't, we don't tend to look at it before they prescribe you something. Mm. So like if you break your arm, they skin, they look at the arm in an x-ray and they see how it is. But if you're having anxiety or depression or whatever, that they don't sort of look at that. So he's done a ton of work Mm. in TBI and PTSD and I have a really dear friend who was in the NFL. And so like he went to see him for what was going on in his, anyway, I'm just, I'm a big nerd. So I love that kind of stuff because I think anything that helps us understand why we do what we do is is so powerful and 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 really, really helpful.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing I've learned from creating a slight change of plans is that while there are a lot of answers in scientific textbooks about how it is that we work, not all the answers exist in those textbooks. Okay. And and actually, we need to find both answers in people's stories, but also questions in people's stories. Like, what are the questions we should even be asking about right. change in the first place? And right. I think in having these conversations with different guests, I have realized how multifaceted the change response is. And I think one thing. I love it when I prove myself wrong. I love when I learn something new that counters my former understanding of something. But I remember before the podcast, I used to think of change, you, know, you one dimension along which you can break up change is there's willed change and there's unwilled change, right? There's like the desired change and the undesired change. And that naturally one would give different advice to someone based on whether it falls into the desirable or undesirable camp. But what I learned from conducting these interviews is that maybe that's not the right way of thinking about change. And the reason for that is any change in our lives, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There can be all sorts of spillover effects into other parts of our life that we simply can't anticipate in in advance. It reminds me, so this one woman I emailed her, or sorry, that I interviewed, her name is Elna Baker. Her lifelong goal was to become thin, and she actually reached her goal um, in five months. She lost one hundred and ten pounds, very sudden drastic weight loss and for a while, she did believe that she was living her dream life until sudden she suddenly she realized that she was actually losing parts of herself in the process, parts of herself that she really valued. So she felt like she was becoming a worse person, that she wasn't as nice to people. She felt she was becoming more superficial. She actually ironically felt a lot more self-conscious post uh, losing the weight um, than she had been prior. She felt like she was less outspoken and bold. And this was a, a great example of someone who willed a change, I mean like engaged in an unhealthy process to lose the weight completely surprised herself in the process and realized that that was not at all the change that she had been craving in her life or needed in her life, and that she was worse off as a result. And on the flip side, I interviewed a young man. His name's Scott. He's 32 years old. He's a cancer researcher, and he's a self-proclaimed health nut. So he's one of those guys that's like vegan, intermittent fasting, high-intensity interval training, of course, turmeric on all of his food. I'm Indian. Love turmeric. Don't pour turmeric on your food. That's like a advisory to people. You got to, you know, use that spice delicately. Anyway, so he's done everything he possibly can to try and optimize the quality of his life and his lifespan. And then when he's 32, he gets a stage four cancer diagnosis that essentially overnight leads him to have to amputate one of his legs He has had multiple surgeries since then, including getting a vertebra removed from his spine, and he's done six rounds of chemotherapy. He had to move to Texas to an inpatient facility because of the intensity of the chemotherapy, and he tells me my worst nightmare came true, and yet remarkably, six months into his treatment, he's sitting on his back patio drinking a cup of coffee saying, what's remarkable, Maya, is that I more or less feel as happy as I did before the diagnosis. Yep, the lows are lower. I'll give you that. But the good things are just as great. A good meal with a friend, listening to a beautiful piece of music, eating a delicious bite of food. There are things that I still really enjoy in life. And I actually feel on a daily basis, not only just as happy, but I also feel like I'm a better person. Like I've tapped into parts of myself I didn't appreciate before. I've developed a bigger kind of empathy towards people. And, you know, that's not everyone's story, but that's Scott's story. And what that taught me and, and what he shared with me is if he had known how he was going to respond psychologically to this change, he would never have feared it as much as he did in the first place. And I thought that was so powerful. And again, I think Elna's story and Scott's story taught me, and I hope also teaches listeners that we need to approach change with a profound amount of humility and almost be a student of it, where we're looking for ways in which we might grow, potentially negative consequences or side effects, because things are changes are just never as clean as we think they'll be. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be exactly the same Maya, but I'm just going to tweak this one piece of me. That's just not how humans work. That's not how life works. And so I've loved discovering these facets of change and these learnings from, from my interview subjects.
0: Oh my gosh. Maya, it sounds so fantastic. If people are listening to this and like geeking out like I am, because when you were (laughs) like, oh, I was like, what's going to happen? This is, this is awesome. Where can they listen to the podcast?
1: Yeah. So it's called A Slight Change of Plans, available on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a new podcast. So if folks are willing to subscribe and rate and share, it would be much appreciated.
0: absolutely. Hey, I really appreciate the time. I'm glad that we got to connect and I'm glad I got to hear your story and I I feel like it's such an important conversation, obviously coming off of last year and what that felt like for so many people, but honestly because even when we're not inside of a pandemic, we're still going to experience change. We all are. It is the only constant in life. And so I love that you're digging in and I know that that's going to be really helpful to the listeners who subscribe and like and share.
1: (laughs) That's so kind of you. Well, thanks for having me on. You ask such thoughtful, insightful questions and have wonderful reflections. So I I absolutely loved uh, our conversation.
0: The Rachel Hollis Podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is produced by Chelsea Harfouch and edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is a 3% Chance production. It's your time.
1: Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice.